let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. Got a great show for you today in our Reasons for Faith segment. We're going to be talking about the greatest gift that Jesus and the Father ever gave to the Church. What it is uh, that makes you holy and pleasing to God and strong in the faith, namely the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll see how the love between the Father and the Son can constitute a third person in the one divine nature and how he lives in your soul as a temple. Also, later in today's broadcast, we have some Catholic kryptonite for you. We're going to be answering the question, why do Catholics insist that their church is the one true church of Jesus Christ when Protestants and evangelicals believe that Christ's uh, true church is a spiritual union of all Christians, regardless of denomination? Now, which is a reasonable question from their perspective. But we'll also see how that becomes authentic Catholic kryptonite when the focus is changed to where do I find the Catholic Church in the Bible? How can this uh, be the church that Jesus founded if the words Catholic Church are not in the Bible? How would you answer that? Is there an answer? Well, we're going to find out later on today. And we'll also look at one of the most persistent mysteries of the Bible known as the synoptic problem. And today you'll find out if it's really a problem at all and what the church's traditional solution to this particular puzzle uh, is that is the source of so much conjecture and confusion amongst biblical scholars. But first, I, I open the show today with uh, the response from today's responsorial psalm. Let all the earth cry out to God with joy. And the coronavirus notwithstanding, it is Easter time. And our journey to the Father's kingdom continues despite the ongoing restrictions caused by the unprecedented response to this pandemic. I think we're reaching a point where many of us are suffering as much from that response as we are from the virus itself. But as Catholic Christians, we know that if God allows us to suffer, then that suffering united to his has meaning and that God will always bring good out of the evil that he allows. And the church has always taught us that suffering is good. It's good for the just, and it's good for the sinner. And why is that? Well, suffering suffering is good for the sinner because it's an opportunity for conversion. And it is good for the just because suffering is a means of obtaining greater merit. And that's why St. Paul says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Hence the response from today's Mass. Let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Now, how, you might wonder, can we be joyful at such a time? Well, part of the secret lies in having a thankful heart. Gratitude is always so welcome, isn't it? I remember uh, years ago when I was doing warm-up, uh, back in the 90s, I was doing warm-up on the TV show Friends. And one week, our guest star was uh, Tom Selleck. In fact, in like three weeks in a row. And we were f filming one of his episodes, and it happened to be Oscar night. And so when the, the filming was over, the cast and crew rushed out of the studio like they'd been shot out of a cannon on their way to the you know fancy Hollywood Oscar parties. Now, Betty and I had just uh, recently moved at that time from Hollywood down to Orange County uh, to help out her folks because her mom um, had lung cancer. So at the end of the show, I was looking forward to a long commute. 
So I went down onto the onto the set and to raid the craft service table, uh, you know, grab a Diet Coke and a cookie or something for the ride home. And who should be down there doing the same thing but Tom Selleck? And, and you know, he said hello. So I introduced myself. I said, hi, Mr. Selleck. I'm Matthew Arnold. I was uh, the one doing the warm-up tonight. And he says, I know. I, I saw you. You did a great job up there. I just want to say thank you. Now, he didn't have to say that. And it's just a small thing, but I'll never forget it. Gratitude is always welcome. Just yesterday, I was reading an article uh, by Father John Hampsch, and I'm going to refer to that in just a moment. And I remember uh, the first time I met him. I was sitting in for Tim Stables on Reasons for Faith Live, and Father Hampsch was our in-studio guest. And it's early in the morning, and he and I were talking before the show, and I asked him if there was anything that I could get for him. And he says, well, I'd like a cup of coffee. So I asked how he took it, and then I, I went and got it for him. And when he tasted the coffee, I said, how is it? And he says, it's perfect. Thank you. And he says, I'm, I will personally lead the cause for your canonization. Now, that was just a little joke, and probably one that he made a thousand times. He's a very charming fellow. But I will never forget it. Gratitude is always welcome. And it's the same with our relationship with God. You know uh, that Thanksgiving, I think we mentioned, talked about this just last week, Thanksgiving is one of the four great ends of prayer. And we can always give praise and thanks to God no matter what our circumstances. Now, Father Hampsch has an article called Counting Your Uncounted Blessings uh, on the website catholicbooks.net. And I thought how appropriate it was for our current situation. So, I mean, if you're interested, you can go to catholicbooks.net, or once this is on the podcast, the notes will be up, and I put a, uh, I put a, a link there. Anyway, in, in his article, he says, to imagine a dish of sand with little bits of uh, iron filings mixed in it. And he said, with your fingers, you might search around for those little particles of iron and not have much success. But, he says, if you were to sweep a magnet through the sand... It would draw to itself even the tiniest little particles of iron. And he says, the unthankful heart is like a finger in the sand and discovers comparatively few of God's blessings in life. But a truly thankful heart will sweep like a magnet through life's circumstances, finding God's blessings, blessings frequently, even in the smallest events of life. And even if those events are, are delightful or hurtful, the grateful heart, he says, will embrace God's will with thanks no matter what happens. That's uh, St. Paul in First Thessalonians 5.18. Father Ham says, just as the magnet finds the iron, so will the thankful heart give thanks to God the Father at all times and in everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, St. Paul, this time from Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Betty and I have six kids. And they're grown now. Our youngest is 13. Our oldest is, our oldest two are uh, married and out of the house. But years ago, we had six, you know, young kids and a big 12-passenger van all full of uh, strollers and diaper bags and, and toys and whatnot. And we always used to pray to our guardian angels to find us a good parking space. And it rarely failed. And I think the reason why is that whenever we got a good spot, my wife was always sure to say, thank you, angels. Thank you, angels angels and have the kids do the same. 
But St. Paul says to give thanks to God the Father at all times and in everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therein lies the secret. See, we're not asked to be thankful for everything. Think about those circumstances in your life, the death of a loved one. Um, God forbid the infidelity of your spouse, the ravages of, of the coronavirus. It's, you know, we're not asked to be thankful for those things. Rather, we should be thankful in those negative situations by faithfully holding the conviction that God's providence will work in and through those situations for our spiritual advantage. It's like St. Paul and his, his uh, quote-unquote unanswered prayer for healing. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, St. Paul says, Three times I begged the Lord to make the suffering go away. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So St. Paul says, I, I will rather boast most gladly of my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may dwell with me. So in every truly godly soul, this magnet of thankfulness, says Father Hamps, will increasingly find countless blessings that inspire gratitude to God in the heart. Because in heaven's view, these are not just specks of iron, but little nuggets of gold. You know, there's an old saying, I kind of collect old sayings, um, and there's an old saying that says, <clears throat> I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but it left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And I've really learned to appreciate so much during these last few weeks. And for example, without being able to go to mass, I have uh, had a much richer experience of the liturgy of the hours. And because I know that this is also the liturgical prayer of the church and that I'm united with Catholics all over the world praying the same prayers and, and primarily the Psalms, which are filled with praise and hope and thanksgiving in every conceivable circumstance of life. And I remember these were the prayers of our Lord and Our Lady and St. Joseph, and they're the prayers of the church today. You know, Father Hamp says that in every event of life, our Lord is testing our reliance on him and waiting for our grateful acknowledgement of his powerful grace working gently in our lives. Our filial trust in God finds its most sublime expression in one of the seven gifts of the Spirit called piety. In a truly pious soul, hidden blessings grow more obvious and gratitude becomes truly fervent. A noble soul will find it easy to thank and praise God in suffering and adversities. And my friend, I'm telling you at this very moment, our blessed Lord is waiting and yearning for the smallest expression of grateful love from you. And that is no nonsense. Okay, I've got a break coming up, which will give me an opportunity to thank God for you and your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, both spiritual and financial. Can't do it without you. Coming up, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Catholic Church, the true church, and is there a no-nonsense solution to the synoptic problem? All, all that and more when we come back right after this.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877 543 3871 because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said, When we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. Uh, words that are perhaps especially true regarding the controversy been raging in the church for more than 100 years called the synoptic problem. And if you've never heard of that before, let's uh, give a little background. If you compare the four Gospels side to side, uh, side by side, you immediately notice, well, the first thing is that the content of the Gospel of John is so radically different than the other three. And most of what we know, or much of what we know about our Lord's life and ministry, we only know because of St. John's Gospel. Uh, but aside from the Passion, John only records three events in common with the other Gospels. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary. So why is it so different? Well, the no-nonsense answer to that is that John, who uh, wrote towards the end of the first century, was familiar with the other Gospels and purposely avoided repeating what was already well known. As the last of the Apostles, he wrote, and really at the request of his own community, he wrote to kind of fill in the blanks, so to speak. And so a lot of um, our Lord's discourses, his actual teaching, is, is only in John. 
But when you compare the other three Gospels, if you, like uh, there was a guy back in 1776, hey, that's the spirit. <laughs> I'm sorry, 1776, his name was uh, Johann Jakob Giesler, if I'm not mistaken. And he put these, um, the Gospels side by side in parallel columns. And, and he noticed that uh, you can see at a glance that they're very similar in arrangement and content. Now, this was already known, uh, and that's where the term synoptic comes from. It means to see all together. But about a third of the content of the synoptic Gospels is common to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the synoptics. Almost all of Mark is found in the other two, and Matthew and Luke have about 240 verses in common with each other. So the same facts are often related in the same order. Even sometimes the same words are used to record the same event. So very similar, but there are also some striking differences. There's about 330 verses that are only in Matthew. Mark has 68 distinctive verses, and 541 verses are unique to Luke. And some of these differences are in the wording of, of passages that are otherwise alike, and important ones, like the Lord's Prayer, or the institution of the Eucharist, our Lord's sayings from the cross. In fact, no single evangelist, we talk about the seven words from the cross, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, no one evangelist records all seven. Now, how can this be accounted for? How do we determine the origin and the relations among the first three Gospels? Uh, uh, you know, to answer both for those differences and the similarities. By the 19th century, this question became known as the synoptic problem. And I might point out that it took 19th centuries to make the distinctions among the synoptic Gospels a problem. <laughs> or perhaps I should say it took a, a mere three centuries of Protestantism. In any event, uh, there are various schools of thought surrounding the solution to the synoptic problem. And the first is the oral tradition theory. Now, according to this approach, uh, the parts of the three Gospels that, that are harmonize the most, owe their similarity to the fact that by the time the Gospels were written down, the apostolic preaching had resolved into a settled form, kind of like the epic poetry of Homer. It was something that people uh, memorized and learned by rote. So the differences then could be accounted for by the evangelist's own testimony or what they had been told by eyewitnesses. Now, the argument against this theory is that the apostolic preaching of the original 12 apostles was in Aramaic, and the Gospels are in Greek. So an oral tradition uh, couldn't completely account for the fact that they have, have these word-for-word -word similarities. And then came the theory of a common written source, and you may have, uh, you may have heard about this. It's called uh, a, a hypothetical document called Q, from the German word quelle, meaning source. Now, supposedly, all the Gospel writers drew upon Q, but then and made their own adaptations, adding or subtracting as they saw fit. Like Q was kind of like an, an outline of our Lord's life with some of his sayings and whatnot, and they just built on that. Now, the problem with this is that, well, there's not a shred of evidence uh, to support the existence of such a document. I mean, can you imagine a more important, a more precious document than the source upon which all the Gospels were based? Why wasn't it preserved? Why? Are there no copies or, or at least fragments? Why is there not so much as a mention of such a source document in Catholic tradition or our history or the Gospels themselves? I submit this is a far bigger mystery than the distinctions amongst the Gospels. 
uh, especially since all four Gospels have been successfully harmonized since the very beginning. Now, strangely, in view of what we just learned about the hypothetical Q document, probably the most popular theory amongst liberal scholars today, both Protestant and Catholic, is the multiple source theory, which multiplies the hypothetical source documents. So now, besides Q, we also have a hypothetical proto-gospel that influenced two other hypothetical documents called A and B, or uh, also known as SM and SL, meaning special to Matthew or special to Luke. So, so the proto-gospel, this, this original hypothetical document, inspired another hypothetical document called A, or SM, that was used by Matthew and Mark for their gospels. But it also inspired B, or SL, which was used by Luke and Mark. And lest we forget our old friend Q, it's claimed to have appeared independently of the proto-gospel and was also used by Matthew and by Luke, but not by Mark. So once again, the, the trouble with this theory should be apparent. If we can't account for one hypothetical document because there's no evidence for it, then this theory just multiplies that objection by four. You know, after a hundred years of theorizing, there have been more than a dozen hypotheses and combinations of conjectures put forth by liberal scholars to solve the synoptic problem. Uh, back in 1992, a biblical scholar named John Wenham observed, he said, I found myself in the synoptic problem seminar of the Society for New Testament Studies, whose members were in disagreement over every aspect of the subject. When this international group disbanded in 1982, they had sadly to confess that after 12 years' work, they had not reached a common mind on a single issue. And this is why when somebody says all Bible scholars agree, whatever follows is nonsense. <laughs> because you get two biblical scholars in a room, there's going to be at least three opinions. But although biblical scholars have not reached a consensus on this, a couple of common opinions have emerged from the synoptic problem crowd. First, that nine out of the 12 most popular theories believe that Mark was the first gospel written. Not because of any corroborating evidence, but simply on the basis that it's the shortest and therefore must have been the first. And then all that other stuff in the other gospels were just added on later. Now, the other opinion is that all of the gospels, all four, were written after 70 AD. Now, everybody agrees that John was written later, but traditionally, everybody assumed that the other Gospels were written earlier than that. And again, this is not because of any concrete evidence. Scholars today say that all the Gospels had to be written after 70 AD to explain away our Lord's prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, uh, you, don't, you can explain away his other miracles as fables or exaggerations, but not predicting the fall of Jerusalem 40 years in advance. However, if if the Synoptic Gospels were written after 70 AD, then scholars don't have to believe that Jesus could predict the future, which is to say, they don't have to believe in his divinity. And there you have the real problem. And that's why way back in 1911-1912, the Pontifical Biblical Commission, which at that time was still an arm of the magisterium, uh, they declared that the multiple source theory cannot be legitimately defended because of its a priori assumptions and because of the lack of of evidence. Okay, but what about the church? Didn't anybody in the entire pre-enlightenment history of the church ever notice the distinctions amongst the synoptic gospels? Of course they did. 
does the tradition of the church not tell us the order in which the Gospels were written? Of course it does. Have you ever picked up a Bible? Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Why? Because according to the constant tradition of the church, with documentary uh, testimony going all the way back to Papias at the very beginning of the second century, Matthew wrote his gospel first and in Aramaic, then Mark, then Luke, and then finally John. Now, regarding this, this synoptic problem, which they didn't consider a problem, the church has held from at least the time of St. Augustine the concept that's called mutual dependence. So, Matthew wrote first to a Jewish audience, hence the Aramaic. Mark used Matthew's gospel when he wrote for the Gentiles in Rome. And then the Greek translation of Matthew was made uh, in partial dependence on Mark's gospel, accounting for the word-for-word similarities. And then St. Luke used both Greek Matthew and Mark for his gospel. Okay, so that explains the similarities. But what about the difference? Well, Mark was secretary to St. Peter in Rome. So his gospel was also influenced by Peter's preaching as well as the gospel of Matthew. St. Luke was a disciple of St. Paul. And he had other sources as well, including, uh, um, according to the tradition, the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's why only St. Luke has the accounts of the, um, the Annunciation and the Visitation and the Magnificat. All these things about Mary and, and stories about the other women that were undoubtedly conveyed to him by the Blessed Virgin Mary only appear in his Gospel. And St. Luke himself, right in the, the opening verse of his Gospel, says that he con, uh, consulted several sources in order to prepare an orderly account for someone he called most excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus, of course, he was writing in Greek for, for a cultured Greek audience, um, Gentiles and Hellenistic Jews. Uh, and so, I mean, Luke was educated. He was a physician. So, uh, you know, he was a, a person that, that had a, a specific audience in mind. And he was also, you know, putting in these things that were not available in the other synoptic Gospels. So, you know, uh, you can account for the differences readily by the individual style and the special purpose, audience, and the personality of each one of the evangelists. You know, the, the fact is that you do not have to be a biblical scholar in order to benefit from reading the Holy Bible. If, as Thomas Akempis recommends in chapter 5, book 1 of The Imitation of Christ, he says, read with humility, simplicity, and above all, with faith. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about why Catholics claim they are the true church. And it's our Catholic kryptonite segment, because we're going to ask, where do I find the Catholic church in the Bible? How can this be the Church of Jesus, uh, the one he founded, if the words Catholic Church are not in the Bible? Well, we're going to take a look at those questions one at a time when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stick with us, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment after these messages.
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I've got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old five kids and I thank you guys but everybody else man get on fire fight for the truth man I know what I'm telling you guys there's I no love it out there This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life 877-543-3871 because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And for our Catholic Kryptonite segment this week, we talk about the church. I actually mentioned this last week uh, as an example. When a non-Catholic Christian asks, why do Catholics insist that their church is the one true church of Jesus Christ, when Protestants and evangelicals believe that Christ's true church is a, a spiritual union of all Christians? regardless of denominations. And, you know, from their perspective, it's a legitimate question. Although the person asking that question is probably prepared with a whole barrage of Bible verses to try and prove his point. But it really becomes Catholic kryptonite when the focus is changed to where do I find the Catholic Church in the Bible? How can this be the church Jesus founded if the words Catholic Church are not in the Bible? So we're going to take these one at a time. First, Why do Catholics insist that their church is the one true church of Jesus Christ when Protestants and evangelicals believe that Christ's true church is a spiritual union of all Christians regardless of denomination? Now, to be fair, in a sense, it is true that at the most basic level, Christians are united because everyone who receives valid Christian baptism technically belongs, however imperfectly, to the Catholic church. 
And of course, Catholics look forward with hope to the day when the divisions of Christendom will be overcome and our separated brethren will enter into the fullness of the truth. But in the present reality, Catholics recognize that even though our separated brethren may have many elements proper to the Church of Christ, for example, valid baptism and prayer and the Holy Bible, the fact remains that the one true Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church alone. Now, I'm going to put a bookmark there because uh, speaking of Catholic kryptonite, some of our radical traditionalist brethren will say, oh, this is the smoking gun on Vatican II. Because the Council of Trent, dogmatic Council of Trent, said that the true Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, the Latin est. Whereas Vatican II, just pastoral council, says that it merely subsists, the true Church of Christ merely subsists in the Catholic Church, which suggests that it could subsist elsewhere, which, of course, is precisely the opposite of what it means. And also I would point out that Vatican II was a pastoral council, but it has two dogmatic constitutions, one of which is the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, that tells us the true Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Because we're seeing, look, other churches have some of the elements, baptism, prayer, the Bible. But the Catholic Church doesn't just have the elements. Um, in philosophy, you might say not just the accidents, but the substance Right? It's the true Church of Christ subsists. It, subs it is substantially present in the Catholic Church alone, and for a number of good reasons. First off, the Catholic Church is the only Christian church that goes all the way back in history to the time of Christ. This is an easy one. Look it up in the Cyclopedia Britannica. Look it up online, and you will discover that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ in Jerusalem in 33 AD. Number two, the fathers of the early church all professed to belong to this same Catholic Church. Now, Jesus' followers were originally called Nazareans because Jesus was from Nazareth. Around the year 35 AD, the term Christians was coined because the apostles claimed that Jesus was the Christ. And the Bible says uh, in Acts 11:26, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. You notice it doesn't say that they called themselves that. St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, one of the church fathers um, in the first century, said, where the bishop is, there let the multitude of believers be, even as where Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. Now, Ignatius wrote those words uh, circa A.D. 98 to maybe 107, and in context, he clearly expects his readers to understand what he means by Catholic Church. In fact, he's appealing to their knowledge of this Catholic Church to make a point. So the term Catholic Church must be older than this writing. It must have been in common use. So where does the term Catholic Church originate? Well, surprise, it comes from the Bible. Now, most people know that the word Catholic as an adjective comes from the Greek and means universal. Okay, I've been told that enough times now. Thank you very much. In the book of Acts, we read, and it does mean universal, but that has an important meaning. We're going to see. In the book of Acts, it says, the church, this is Acts 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace. It was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord, 
and with the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. Acts 9.31. In the original Koine Greek, that expression, the church throughout all, is ecclesia kath alos. From the very beginning, the church throughout all, this term, the ecclesia kath alos, that is, the Catholic Church. That term designated the one church that was manifest in all the places where the gospel had been preached. Okay, so you have one church, and then you have particular churches, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, you know, the, the, the church at Thessalonica. But they all belong to this universal church, all the local communities. So the book of Acts refers to the church in the singular. The church, it was being built up. It grew in number. What was being built up? What was growing in number? The church throughout all. Ecclesia caught the lost. Today, that means more than just Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, but the church throughout all the world. The Ecclesia caught the lost, the Catholic Church. So when somebody asks, where's Catholic Church in the Bible? Now you know. Catholicism also teaches that the church can be identified by the four marks, that she's one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. That comes right out of the Apostles' Creed, which some of our separated brethren recite on Sunday, just like we do. Catholic with a small c, universal, they say, but yeah, universally meaning they belong to this one visible church, a city set on a hill, our Lord says, not some invisible union. The church is one because all of its members, according to the will of Christ, profess the same faith, have the same sacrifice and sacraments, they're united under the one visible head, the Pope. The church is holy. Yeah, maybe not all of her members. I mean, we never even claimed that. The church is holy because Jesus Christ is the source of all holiness. It's holy in its doctrine, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ, of which the church is the custodian. The church is holy in its sacraments, which Jesus established to sanctify human beings. And the church is Catholic or, or universal. It's not destined for one race or one people or one locality. It was meant to be the light and salvation of everyone all around the world. There isn't a single country where the good tidings of salvation either haven't been announced or, or shouldn't be. And then the church is apostolic, which means that it had its beginnings with the apostles. So when, when Jesus commanded the apostles to go forth and teach all nations, he you know to call all nations to his church, to let them enter the door of the church through baptism. Jesus promised to assist them in their ministry to, until the consummation of the world. And that is a promise that embraces all times, not just apostolic times. Nor does Jesus address himself personally to the apostles alone, but to all those who would succeed them till the end of the world. And by the legitimate succession of its pastors, principally the, the Roman pontiffs, from the apostles all the way on down to our own times and until the end of the world, the church can and will always be able to trace its origin from the apostles and from them to Jesus. He said in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And then finally, uh, regarding the belief that uh, Christ's true church is a, a spiritual union of, of all Christians, regardless of denomination, Scripture tells us how Jesus himself and how the early church felt about division. You know, it's well known that today there are many Christian denominations and they disagree about what Christ actually taught, even on important issues, on, on the Holy Eucharist. Or uh, uh, baptism, for example, one, one denomination says that, 
that baptism has to be by immersion only. And another approves baptism by the sprinkling of water. An- another says baptism by water isn't even necessary at all. And on and on and on. But Jesus made it plain that there should not be many denominations when he said, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And St. Paul picks up that theme when he says, strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, as you are also called to the one hope of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. So Catholics, therefore, we can't believe that Christ would ever sanction divisions in his church. You know, the the night before he suffered and died, Christ prayed for his followers that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17, 21. The fact that Christian believers are divided into thousands of rival denominations, that's not the unity that Jesus prayed for. It's the scandal of Christendom. And now, if Jesus only founded one church, then it follows that all of the rest of them were started by men. And all know, although they, they may believe much that is true and have many elements of, of salvation and have many members who are sincerely uh, love the Lord and want to, to follow him, Catholics have to choose the church that was founded by our Savior, the church that he promised to be with until the end of time. And that, dear friends, is no nonsense. Okay, we're coming up on another break. Um, Before we go, I wanted to mention to you that next month, in fact, on the 15th of next month, uh, and it please God, we will have a new new program on Virgin Most Powerful Radio on Fridays uh, from noon to one Pacific time. That's when it will run live. It's going to be called Understanding Divine Mercy. Mercy, and it will be yours truly as moderator and Father Chris Alar, who is with the uh, priests of the you know the Divine Mercy priests, and we're, we're going to be talking about the Divine Mercy and understanding it and how it relates to our lives and many many aspects of our lives, how it relates to our religion. Father Alar is is a joy, and, and we expect to be on the Terry and Jesse show on May the eighth as sort of a um, a teaser, so you can tune in then also. But Understanding Divine Mercy with Father Chris Aylark coming next month, and more No-Nonsense Catholic coming right after this. Stay with us. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
Daniel, what a testimony. And I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Sirach 11.24 says, Do not say, I am self-sufficient. What harm can come to me now? According to St. Catherine of Siena, presumption is like vermin burrowing at the root of the tree of our soul. If we do not uproot it with great care and humility, it will eventually destroy the soul. May God keep us from all presumption of mind and heart and realize that we depend on Him for everything. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. Last week, I talked about St. John Paul II's pastoral plan for the third millennium called Novo Millennio Eniunte, as we enter the third millennium. And the overarching theme of this plan is holiness. And this was also the principal theme of Lumen Gentium, Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on the church, which we were just talking about in the last segment. In Lumen Gentium A, or 5, rather, it says, The Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples of every condition. The Thus it is evident that all the faithful of Christ, to whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. Or in the words of our Lord Jesus himself, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so St. John Paul II outlined the seven-step plans for Catholics to achieve holiness, specifically in the third millennium. And step five on that plan is to live by grace and by by the Spirit. So that's our question. How do we live by the Spirit? That's what I want to talk about, um, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know, because the Church tells us so, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Blessed Trinity, truly God, like uh, the Father and the Son. But I I suspect of the three divine persons, the Holy Spirit is the least well-known, and perhaps because he's the hardest to describe. I mean, I think we have a good idea of what is meant by a father and a son, but how can the love between the father and the son constitute a third person in the one divine nature? Our Lord helps us out in Scripture. He describes the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, which is helper or counselor. He is the spirit of truth that Christ promises will be with us always and whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor recognizes him. Jesus tells the apostles, the 
the advocate, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. In John 14. And when he comes, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. John 16, 13. But helper, advocate, counselor, these are terms that describe what the Holy Spirit does, not who the Holy Spirit is. In Catholic art, uh, the Holy Spirit is most often depicted as a dove because he appeared in the form of a dove at our Lord's baptism. So there's another question, why a dove? Well, in Scripture, the dove represents peace and reconciliation, which, of course, is entirely appropriate for the Holy Spirit. You know, think of the, the dove that Noah sent out from the ark after the flood. Uh, the dove also stands for divine inspiration. For example, we can see uh, St. Peter's Confession of Faith when he says, uh, Jesus says, who do men say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says this had been revealed to him by God and calls him Simon Barjona, which means son of the dove, right? showing the divine inspiration. Also, amongst ancient people, the dove was a symbol of divinity, uh, something of which the Jews were certainly aware. So the dove emphasizes the divinity of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Blessed Trinity. We know that on the first Christian Pentecost, and uh, Steve Ray was just on the uh, Terry and Jesse show the other day talking about Pentecost, worth a listen. Uh, go back in the, in the app or, you know, go to the archives on the website. First Christian Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles in the form of tongues of fire. And I say the first Christian Pentecost because Pentecost was already a Jewish holy day. It was the memorial of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai 50 days after Passover. And I think it's significant that God would choose this great feast day to send the Holy Spirit on the early church that was gathered in the upper room. Because Jews from all around the known world were there in Jerusalem for the Holy Day. And so after Peter's sermon, not to mention the, the 3,000 baptisms that followed, these newly minted Christians returned to their own cities to spread the good news all over the Roman Empire. And they have the fiery tongues that point to the, the divine presence of the Holy Spirit. And not inspiring fear, like on Mount Sinai. You know, if you, we, at Easter time, we recently rewatched the Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. And when God's giving them the commandments, it, it appears as that pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. And, and Moses is like kind of cowering as the commandments are burned into the stone. But he comes on, on Pentecost, not, you know, in, in, a, in a scary way, but in, it, as an, an illumination, a supernatural illumination. And so the tongues of fire suggest how the apostles were, were empowered to speak in every language, right? Because they're described as tongues, and the burning zeal that the Spirit produced in them. Even the shape of a bishop's mitre today, you know, it has that kind of odd pointy shape. Well, it's meant to resemble a flame, to remind us of Pentecost, and that the bishops are the successors of the apostles who were there on that first Pentecost, and they're their successors by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think we often hear, especially as Christians, we hear about the brotherhood of man. We hear people say, oh, we're all God's children. You know, Scripture tells me that I am safe in his loving care. In fact, uh, that God loves me even more than my own mother. May she rest in peace. God told the prophet Isaiah, can a mother forget her infant, be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Yet even if she should forget, I will never forget you. But Scripture also tells me that I am not a child of God by nature, because that relationship was broken by the original sin. 
On the contrary, I am a child of God by divine adoption, and that comes about by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is, is a new birth precisely, uh, you know, as a child of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born above of water and the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be baptized in order to be saved. Why? Because when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, obviously he didn't need to be baptized. He had no sin. So why do it? Well, he transformed baptism from a symbolic ritual cleansing to a sacrament that actually accomplishes what it symbolizes. In the waters of baptism, our sins really are washed away. And the Holy Spirit descends on us, just like he did uh, on Jesus when our Lord came up out of the water at his baptism. And again, like Jesus, God the Father also says of us, Behold, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit comes to us again in a special way at confirmation. Uh, the sacrament by which those who are born again in baptism are now sealed, uh, receive the seal of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father and the Son, to be united more perfectly with the church and to be given that, that special strength of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and holy fear, fear of the Lord. This is the, as they used to say uh, back in the old days, it's the sacrament that makes you a soldier in Christ's army. And like the apostles, you know, the strength of the Holy Spirit is going to help bring Jesus Christ, his example, his way of life, his church, to others. Right? That's, that, that's the soul of evangelization, which, by the way, is step number seven on St. John Paul VII's pastoral plan for the third millennium. So we need to pray often for the grace to live our confirmation to be able to share and defend our faith. So, and as long as we are in a state of grace, the Holy Spirit lives in our soul and makes us holy by sanctifying grace, which is God's own life in us, and by giving us the virtues of faith, hope, and charity that come with that divine life. Holy Spirit gives us the virtue of, of faith, helping us to believe in God's word, and the virtue of hope, because Jesus promises us his, his love and his care forever, and that he'll never leave as long as we remain united to him, which we do through the Holy Spirit, who also gives us the virtue of love, love of God and, and of neighbor, because they also belong to him. And the presence of the Holy Spirit enables us to love with the love of God, even our enemies, if we will it so. The Holy Spirit also gives us actual grace, the grace we need for our intellect and will to give light to the mind, strength to the will to, to choose and to do the good and to avoid evil. You see, I ultimately think we see and recognize the Holy Spirit that the world cannot see or recognize. We see and recognize the Holy Spirit in our own lives. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to remain with the church forever. And at that moment, the the church became a visible society, a city on a hill, as Jesus would have it. And the Catholic Church is the community of those who believe in Christ as Lord. And through the Holy Spirit, the church carries on his work of salvation. Uh, the Holy Spirit guides the popes and the bishops and the priests of the church to do their work of teaching Christ's doctrine and guiding souls and giving us grace through the sacraments. And then finally, it, it directs all the works of Christ in the church, caring for the sick and teaching children, comforting the sorrow, uh, the sorrowful, supporting the needy. Lastly, St. Paul says, are you not aware that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Grace is a gift. It is the gift of God himself 
And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are united to the Father and the Son in a union of love. United in Jesus, we're led by the Holy Spirit on our journey to the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. I will pray to the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells within you and will be with you. Holy Spirit helps us to fulfill our duties and to strive for what is good. He encourages us to pray. He unites us to the Trinity by holy love and makes us holy. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. He is the soul of the church, and your soul is his temple. And that is no nonsense. All right, I want to say thank you so much for being with us this week. We got uh, more stuff coming. Of course, we'll be back next Wednesday at the same time, 12 Pacific to 1 Pacific every Wednesday. And coming up on Friday, the 15th of May, We'll be doing our new program at uh, 12 noon on Fridays with Father Chris Alar called Understanding Divine Mercy. I'm very much looking forward to that. And Father Alar and I, God willing, will be on the Terry and Jesse show on May the 8th to give everybody kind of a sneak preview of uh, what the show is going to be about and what it will be like. And I I very much look forward to it personally, and I hope that you will uh, listen and enjoy it very much. And speaking of which, this program is for you. This is the place to come where the confusion ends. This is the place to come for the no-nonsense answer that doesn't have any any uh, spin. Okay, I'm not going to come here. I'm not, I have no axe to grind other than to tell you what it is that the church actually teaches and to assure you that what the church teaches today is what the church has always taught. And we're going to demonstrate that. So if you have a question, please feel free to... Uh, uh, Go to the website, go to nononsensecatholic.com, go to my website, Matthew Arnold, and send me your question. I'll be happy to address it on the program. All right, in the meantime, thank you, God bless you, and we'll see you next week. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.